Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast, brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In our seventh lesson in our series on the life of the Apostle Paul, Dale South shares with us about the first church council that took place in Jerusalem and set the course for God's kingdom work through the clarification of the gospel and the inclusion of the Gentiles into the people of God. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15 as we continue learning how to be imitators of Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. This passage of Scripture is just a glorious passage uh, for, for me and I think for those of us particularly who are consider ourselves missionary in some, some aspect here of wanting to see the gospel go forth to all, all the nations. And in Acts chapter 15, Luke describes what has come to be known as the Jerusalem Council. Um, this is a, occurring in a very critical moment in church history, as Hunter uh, sort of alluded to in his introduction here. It probably happened around the year AD 49. It's about 16 years after Jesus had been crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. And the, the church had been birthed on that first day of Pentecost after Jesus' resurrection. And so Paul and Barnabas and their missionary team, their, their church planting team that had just gone out on this first journey into Cyprus and, and southern Asia, Asia Minor, into Turkey and in that area, uh, they had, had just returned. And we've, we've been looking at that over the, the past several weeks there. In fact, I think I have the uh, map here to go to. You guys just look at these quickly, because uh, this is, this is the, the main takeaways that we want to be able to, to get every week. And by the end of our series, we want to have this pretty much ingrained in our memories and heart. But I've got a lot of ground to cover today. So we, we see that they started off in Antioch, and they went all over there to Cyprus, then to Perga, and back so now they're back at their starting point up there in Antioch, right, right, right there. And so they, they've gotten back to the church from their original um, mission trip. It was an 18-month-long mission trip, and a significant number during that time of, of, of people from Jewish synagogue worshipers came to accept the gospel, and, and, and they trusted that Jesus was the promised Messiah King that had been promised actually from Adam and Eve when God said, you know, out of this woman's womb will come one who one day the serpent will bite his heel, but he will crush the serpent's head. And Jesus was the fulfillment of that first and all the other prophecies that came afterwards. And however, uh, it wasn't just Jewish synagogue believers. It, it was Jewish kind of God-fearing people who believed the God of the Jews but hadn't fully converted to Judaism because conversion required them, as particularly men, to be circumcised. And it went even beyond that, though. It, it, it went down to not just Gentiles who were sort of open to or, or worshiping the God of the Jews, it came down to hardcore pagans. I mean, we, we saw in, in Lystra, where uh, Paul was stoned and left for dead there, but a number of people among these pagans who were originally thinking that he was uh, Hermes and Zeus, he and Barnabas were Hermes and Zeus, they came to faith in the Lord Jesus. They were, they were baptized. They were incorporated into the church. So the, the church was at this point where it, it was morphing. 
It had, it had gone from being a movement within Judaism to be, becoming something that's not just for like what we would say today, we might think of this as a messianic Jewish movement. It was a subset or a sector within Judaism. And now it included the Gentiles as part of the family. And when Jesus said to the Jewish people in that house that one day, you know, who, who are my mother? Who are my brothers? This one who does the will of my father, this is my mother, my brother, and my sister. He was talking to a Jewish audience there. And that was radical at the time. But now when we're saying these Gentiles are also now our brothers and our sisters, they're also a part of our family through their faith in Jesus Christ. This was extremely radical and offensive to a number of the Jews. So we want to read Acts chapter 15, 1 through 5 to get us started here. We've seen on the map kind of where they were. And I, uh, let's see, get here. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small discussion and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. And it brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they all declared that God had done what, what, what they declared all that God had done with the church and with them. And some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now, We've seen on the map that how far Paul and Barnabas had gone. And as we, we look here, even between Antioch up here and Jerusalem down here, it's about a 250-mile trip that these guys went on. And we talk again, we've mentioned before, I believe, that Jerusalem is in an elevated situation. And, and we tend to think of our maps of north and south. So we say, when we think north, we think go up. And when we say south, we think go down. But for them going down from Jerusalem, this was high territory, and they went down to the lower territory. It was kind of the idea. So they went down from Jerusalem, even though they went north to Antioch. And they stopped probably along the way. Most scholars believe it probably took about a month for them to get from Antioch back down to Jerusalem as they stopped and reported in Phoenicia and these other areas about what all God had been doing on this first missionary journey that they, they went on. And... Uh, these men from Jerusalem, the Judaizers we call them, because they, they were basically saying, you've got to be circumcised and you've got to obey the law of Moses if you're going to be a Christian. Again, they're, they're still thinking in these, these narrow channels that, that Christianity is not even a religion in itself. This is more of a movement within Judaism. These are the Jews who have actually recognized Jesus as the Messiah. So if you want to become one of his followers, you need to become one of us. And you need to get circumcised, and you need to obey the Jewish law. And th these Judaizers, 
became a real um, opponent of Paul in his gospel. In fact, we look at the letter to the Galatians, and it's a power, powerful hitting book there, but it's addressed to these Judaizers who basically said, if you want to become a Christian, you have to become a Jew, and then you become a Christian as part of being that subset of Jews who receive Jesus as the Messiah. And, and so those who argued this line of reasoning, these Judaizers, uh, if their demands had been met and Gentile believers were required somehow to be circumcised, and if they would have gone to have, if this argument had won the day and that anyone to become a Christian from a Gentile background would have to also obey all the Mosaic law, then the spread of the gospel to the Gentile world in, in the whole history of Christianity would be very different. In fact, we don't even have any confidence that you and I would be here today of having received the gospel if it had stayed bound up within just a small movement within Judaism. This is probably one of the major decisions of all of church history. Probably one of the biggest controversies, most significant controversies of, of all of, of church histories. And, you know, on the, on the one hand, we have to be able to, to, to see the reasoning of the Judaizers, it, particularly in their eyes. It made sense, didn't it? I mean, the, the Jesus himself was a Jew. E even more, Jesus was the Messiah of the Jewish people. Um, Jesus, all of his followers up to that point had been Jews. So at, at that time... To be Christian meant to be Jewish also. But this was something that was changing. Our, our passage in Acts 15 is really concerned with two big, big issues here. The first one is theological. And it focuses on the question, what does the gospel of Jesus Christ teach about how one has to be saved? That was the huge question at play here. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ teach about how a person must be saved. And then the second issue was not as much theological, it was much more of a practical issue. It was extremely practical for Christ's followers in the church because it had to do with table fellowship. It had to do with really how could you eat a meal outside of the church, or even more importantly, how could you partake together, partake together of communion and the, the Lord's Supper, because how could Jewish Christians who were trying to honor the Jewish dietary and purity laws celebrate the Lord's Supper alongside of Gentiles who were not observing those laws and would be ritually unclean? Just to come take the Lord's Supper together, the Jewish people felt they would have been contaminated and been unclean by something that should have been a highlight of their worship week. So the, the Jewish people have always been a small portion of the world's population. I, I am just amazed today. You know that the Jewish people at one point before the like 1940s, before the Holocaust, they were up to like 16 million people, and they have never recovered that number since then. Today, there are approximately 15 million Jews worldwide, um, and that's less than two-tenths of 1% of the global population are, are Jewish. They've always been a small portion. And, and the Jewish Christians in the Jerusalem church 
they, they could see the writing on the wall here. You know, if the standards are going to be lowered, and we're going to let these Gentiles into the church now, and they don't have to be circumcised, and they don't have to obey the Old Testament law, the numbers just dictated pretty obviously that very soon the church was going to be predominantly a Gentile church, a majority Gentile church. These Judaizing Pharisaic men in the, in the church in Jerusalem were about to lose their influence. And not just their influence, but without observing the law, and without having standards of high holiness and righteousness, how, how, who knew how these idolatrous and sexually immoral Gentiles might come in and damage the church and totally destroy the witness of the gospel worldwide? So for many of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, especially the Pharisees who, who saw themselves as, as lovers and keepers of God's law, uh, allowing Gentiles into the church without any commitment to Jewish law re represented a very real crisis for them. See, on, on the one hand, they feared the church would forget the law. And on the other hand, they feared they would lose their influence in the church. The entire identity of the church as a Jewish messianic movement would shift to the Gentiles. And if there were no requirements to observe the Jewish law, uh, they could only see the church moving in a direction uh, that was not good. Their long-awaited Messiah, the object of all the covenants that God made, the covenant with Adam, the covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Isaac, the covenant with Jacob, the covenant with David, all those covenants with God's people as this Jew selected God's possession people would no longer be exclusively for them. The Gentiles would now be engrafted and included in, in all of, of those covenants. And without the knowledge of the law, these Gentile converts, at least to begin with, wouldn't even know about these covenants with Adam and Noah and Jacob and Isaac and David and all throughout, much less appreciate those covenants and how God had fulfilled them by his promises. So if anyone in the entire planet at that time would have understood the position of the Judaizers, I believe it would have had to have been the Apostle Paul. Uh, he could empathize with them because he himself, right, had been one of those law-loving, law-keeping Pharisees. Re recall that when Luke first introduced the Apostle Paul to us, he was Saul of Tarsus before he changed his name to the Gentile mission, and he was violently opposing the gospel and the Jews who proclaimed it. He was holding the coats of the guys that were stoning Stephen. He was going around with letters trying to have Christians put into jail to be imprisoned and killed. Paul understood where these guys were coming from. And, and, and Paul saw when he met the Lord on the road to Damascus, something very, very powerful happened to him, right? In his conversion, his mind and his heart and his loves were absolutely rearranged. And so when, when Paul received Jesus as the Messiah, and when the Holy Spirit entered into Paul, the trajectory of his life and ministry went in a radically different direction. You see, Paul did not love the law any less than he ever loved the law. 
He never denigrated the law. However, he understood its purpose better than he ever had before. Because Paul had come to see that Jesus, that Jesus was the only human to perfectly fulfill the law. Paul still loved God's law, but the good news of the gospel superseded God's, uh, God's law. For, for Paul, the gospel itself was at stake and, and the debate uh, with these, with these Judaizers at the Jerusalem Council was ultimately important. For both of these groups, everybody had a lot to lose. Uh, the, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, especially those advocating circumcision and law-keeping, knew they were going to lose control if the Gentiles were accepted without keeping the law. And Paul and Barnabas knew that if that were required, the gospel itself would have been compromised and tainted. And the gospel reaching the nations would probably not be able to happen if uh, the Jewish people kept control by making people obey the law. So one, one would have a good argument, I think, in defining this church's mission to the Gentiles, and the, and the message would be preached was perhaps the most significant controversy in church history. What is the meaning of the gospel? How must a person be saved? And then how do we maintain unity when there's so many differences culturally and ethnically, how do we keep the body held together? Because they were on the brink of splitting the church in Jerusalem from the church in Antioch. And this division would have resulted in the Jewish church on one hand and a Gentile church on the other hand. And they couldn't even agree then on what the gospel of Jesus actually meant. This was a critical, critical time. Um, Paul and Barnabas knew that for the sake of the gospel and for the health of the church, they, they needed to have this very difficult discussion with the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem. Because the, the church in Antioch then sent a team that traveled the 250 plus miles and, and they, they, they took their time getting there. And, and that takes us up now to verses 6 through 11 and Acts 15. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. Now, as Peter stood up and reminded everybody that he was the very first one to take the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius. We find that story back in Acts chapter 10. They believed the gospel. They received it. They received Jesus. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that was about two years prior. And at that time, God just poured out his spirit on these Gentiles. And then Peter had to answer to these same elders when he came back to Jerusalem and had to explain to them, yes, God, the Holy Spirit came on them just like he did on us. So Peter's reminding them of that. And in his remarks, Peter declared that the Jews are going to be saved the same way the Gentiles are, through faith, by grace. 
Now, the Jews nor the Gentiles would ever be saved through circumcision or keeping the law of Moses. This is, just by way of a little tidbit, this is the last time we see the name Peter in the book of Acts here. Uh, he's going to take a back seat now. We're going to see after chapter 15, it's pretty much Paul is the main focus of his mission and ministry. And although Luke doesn't give us many details about Paul's letter to the Galatians, or, or about many details about what Paul and Barnabas said here, Paul's letter to the Galatians gives us some sort of extra information that I think dovetails right in with this Jerusalem council. I'm going to look at Acts chapter, or Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through, if I can get my thing going here. There we go. Um, well, let's go with this big idea before we even get there. Paul and Barnabas were more concerned about the gospel reaching the nations than they were about keeping control of the church within Judaism. That, that is a huge, huge truth that we see in this passage. Now, as we get into Galatians 2, 1 to 5, Paul is writing to these Galatian Judaizers who once again are telling the people in Galatian, southern Turkey, you've got to be circumcised if you want to become a Christian to join the church. You've got to basically become a Jew first. Paul was saying then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. We believe that was this Jerusalem council we're talking about today in Acts 15. Taking Titus along with me. He would have been, Titus would have been one of the others that the church at Antioch sent with Paul and Barnabas to this council. He said, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So Paul here is, again, working on the, the integrity of the gospel message. These false brothers may refer to what we just read about in Acts 15. Then some brothers went down from Judea to teach the people, you must be circumcised in order to be saved. In any case, Paul's major concern was to preserve the truth of the gospel. And there's one more passage in Galatians chapter 3 that I think really sets this up about Paul's relationship between the, the law and the gospel. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Well, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, and the, the obvious answer here is, but there is no law that could be given that could give life. But if there had been, then, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The promises by faith, excuse me. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian. Paul calls it a tutor, our guardian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith, not by the law. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So this just gives us great insight into where Paul was uh, 
on, on this. And I want to go back here soon to, to verses 13 to 21 to finish up. But Luke recorded Peter's words as the leading apostle. And Peter strongly supported Paul's gospel for Jews and Gentiles, same gospel that were saved by grace through faith, not through circumcision, not through observance of the Jewish law. They were unnecessary for salvation. Only Jesus can save. Now in verses 13 through 21, we see James is going to get up and, and speak. After they finished speaking, that would be Paul and Barnabas, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from them a people for his name. <clears throat> and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who make these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the, the synagogues. Now, this James, just to make the distinction, is, is James, the brother of Jesus, who one time had been mocking Jesus uh, about even going to the Feast of Tabernacles. This is not James, the brother of John, who was one of the 12 apostles. This is the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, James showed how the Gentiles coming to faith uh, were, were really promised in the Old Testament. He, he, he begins by quoting Isaiah chapter 42, uh, and, and then Amos chapter 9, if your Bibles have a little bit of an inset there or something to show that these are in quotes, that's because they're coming from these Old Testament prophecies. And James is going right back to the Old Testament scriptures here to show how that God had already prophesied that the Gentiles were going to be coming in to his people. In verse 19, then James addressed the theological question that we've been dealing with. What does the gospel of Jesus Christ teach about how someone must be saved. What does James say? He says, well, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. This word trouble as a verb has the idea of causing unnecessary difficulty or imposition. It's basically saying, we don't need to make it any harder for them than it already is. And then, the leading apostle Peter and the leading and elder James now were in theological agreement that salvation does not come through circumcision or obeying the law. It comes through the shed blood of Jesus Christ by faith in him and his grace. In verses 20 and 21, though, after addressing the issue of what is, it, what is the gospel about being saved, getting that clearly fine, Peter, the apostle, leading apostle, James, the leading elder, in agreement, lockstep with Paul's gospel, now he goes to that second practical question of table fellowship. And he starts to answer the, the, the question of how do Jewish law-keeping Christians share in table fellowship in the Lord's Supper with Gentiles who are Christians but are not law-keeping Christians? 
And James suggests that the Gentile disciples should abstain from four things. I think I have them on the screen here for us. There. Um, one of them is meat sacrificed to idols. Another is sexual immorality. Meat from animals that have been strangled and from the, the blood of animals. And all four of these have strong, strong ties to idolatrous Gentile religions. And commentator James Polhill has the quote that you see on the screen there, um, that all four of these apostolic decrees are also found in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18 as requirements that were expected of resident aliens. Fascinating. When, when the Old Testament is talking there about these people from other countries who come in not to harm you, but to live in the land and, and, and to, to be able to make a living with you there, he, he says, you're to welcome them and you're to treat the alien and the sojourner as one of your own. Because remember, you were aliens in a foreign land in Egypt. Remember how God took care of you. And, and so we, we see these four things here were required of the resident aliens who came in. They, they had to abstain from the blood of animals, the strangled meat. They couldn't be involved in illicit sexual relationships and idolatrous practices. Now, as you, as you look at this, to me, James doesn't say these four prohibitions are necessary for salvation, but he does say they're necessary for table fellowship within Jewish and Gentile Christians to keep the unity in the body. If we're going to have these different ethnicities, these different cultures, different backgrounds, we have to have some deference for one another. And you know, it just kind of has been rattling around in my mind. I may be wrong on this, but every single generation since this generation, I think, has had to deal with this issue of ethnic differences within their culture and within the church. And we, we've all had to deal with this thing of what, how do we keep table fellowship with people who may come from very different backgrounds and be very different from us and people that we wouldn't have chosen to be friends if it were just all up to us. And now we find them being called brothers and sisters in this church. I think, you know, there's how do we maintain standards that say we must stay away from sexual immorality and we must stay away from idolatry to have table fellowship together at the Lord's table and even to, to be able to really enjoy fellowship around the dinner table in our homes. But every generation has to deal with that. And I believe that our, our particular generation right now at this time is pretty close to a tipping point in, in dealing with these very issues of how, how do you deal with uh, ethnicity and differences there? How do you deal with the issue of sexual immorality? See, brothers, like the council at Jerusalem, we must be vigilant to safeguard the message of the gospel. We just got to make sure that we don't add any extra requirements to salvation beyond trusting in the completed atoning work of Jesus the Messiah on our behalf on the cross. But likewise, once we get our gospel straight, we also must be vigilant to figure out to have some common denominators needed to protect the unity of the body so that we can have table fellowship with other believers in our homes and at the communion table. 
we, we must call believers to abstain from idolatry. And we must call believers to abstain from sexual immorality. But beyond those two, there's not a whole lot of extra calling out that we need to do other than some of the things maybe in Paul's letters and some of the commands in the New Testament. But most of it comes down to Jesus saying, love your neighbor and even your enemy the way that I have loved you. Um, everyone at that Jerusalem council then agreed to the terms that were suggested by James. It was marvelous. The, the church in Jerusalem sent a letter back to the church in Antioch stating the outcome. You know, you, the Gentiles don't need to be circumcised. They don't need to obey the law. Have them come to Christ by faith. We Jews realize we come to Christ by faith as well. But just have them abstain from eating the meat sacrificed to idols or from animals that have been strangled or eating the blood. And don't let them practice their idolatry. And then we can come together at the Lord's table. We, we, we can make this work. The Jerusalem Council... I believe, marked a path for mission in the rest of the New Testament and beyond. It was monumental, absolutely monumental in terms of the church's health and expansion in the first century. But what can we learn from this council to apply today? Again, I, I want to share with you one that you can let the Holy Spirit in the Acts chapter 15 tell you if I'm on the right track or if I'm off the wall. But I believe most of us would agree that in our country today, in the United States of America, we have some very, very deep divisions centering on the topics of race and ethnicity and immigration. The demographics of our country are changing, and they're changing pretty rapidly. Much like the Judaizers in AD 49 could see the writing on the wall, if the gospel allowed Gentiles into the church without circumcision, without putting up some barriers to membership and adherence to the law of Moses, the church would become a predominantly Gentile church. And their influence would diminish. And they absolutely feared what the outcome might be. And today, I believe we see that by the year 2045... Caucasians in the United States will become a minority of the population. What are called minorities today are going to be called a majority-minority country. We're going to be a, a, the majority of America will be made up of minorities, and Caucasians will be a minority. So this is gravely concerning to a significant segment of white people who have seen our country as founded by white people, influenced by white people, largely controlled by white people. Now, as followers of Jesus, what would we say about this matter that has the potential to, to damage the spread of the gospel, to, to disrupt table fellowship among believers, if the church were to have our own Jerusalem council about this today, how would we protect the gospel? And how would we protect the idea, we want to stay away from sexual immorality and we want to stay away from idolatry, but how do we come to put the gospel to bear on these issues of race and immigration? The church and the gospel are absolutely necessary in bringing a healthy outcome to these issues because the world just doesn't have the answers that the gospel has. 
The world has the answers of power against power. We have the answer of a, of a Savior who gave himself up and taught us to love our enemies and to love one another as he has loved us. You see, the big idea, again, is that Paul and Barnabas were more concerned about the gospel reaching the nations than they were about keeping control of the church within Judaism. Now guys, on this issue of sexual morality, holding a line on that, there's going to be a number of people who are going to say, you guys are on the wrong side of history. And yet on this issue of immigration, on the issue of ethnicity, race relations, I am really not concerned. I don't think we need to be concerned about being on the right side of history. But Lord, help us, brothers. We must be on the right side of the gospel. We must be on the right side of the gospel. Thanks for listening to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast. I hope you will join us again next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash men's breakfast. Have a great week.